Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Hezbollah and ISIS in the Middle East, pirate clans in Africa, criminal gangs in South America, and the Taliban in Afghanistan are all non-state actors that control territory and deliver public services that the nation state cannot or will not provide. When national governance breaks down, the vacuum is filled by gangs, militias, and warlords that, in many cases, have substantial popularity. In a new book from the Brookings Institution Press titled Militants, Criminals, and Warlords, The Challenge of Local Governance in an Age of Disorder, the authors explain why the rest of the world has a deep interest in these situations and offer answers to the question, how should the international community respond? On today's show, co-authors Vonda Felbab-Brown and Shadi Hamid, both senior fellows in our foreign policy program, discuss their book with Brookings Press Director Bill Finan. Also on today's show, expert Molly Reynolds offers her update on what's happening in Congress, including a looming government shutdown and issues with the appropriations process. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Here's Bill Finan. Thank you, Fred, and welcome, Vonda and Shadi. Reading your book, I remembered an essay by Robert Kaplan that came out at the end of communism. You might remember it, too. The Coming Anarchy was in the Atlantic. It became a book. It sketched out a world populated by militants and warlords, and it was a dystopia of tribalism and anarchy. Your book offers a different vision of what state breakdown can mean when militants, warlords, and criminal groups occupy the spaces where the state has retreated or been removed. And it's not anarchy, but a sense of order. Why is that? Was there a moment when you went, aha, it's not a case of mere anarchy has been loosed upon the world? Well, a lot of my work has been about illegal economies and for over a decade. And what struck me more than a decade ago was that even something like illegal economies domain that one would assume is without governance is in fact not ungoverned. Mm -hmm. The whole notion of ungoverned spaces is very much a misconception as well as a misnomer. Both illegal domains, informal domains, as well as places without a state are governed. They're governed by different actors, different entities. And Bill, I would perhaps somewhat challenge the notion that the state has always broken down or retreated in these places. In many of these areas, the state has been present for decades since the inception of the state in very limited capacity. And the state agrees and outsources governance to non-state actors. Mm -hmm. So do, in fact, international interveners. In the case studies in the book, we discuss time and over again how international interveners rely on local proxies to govern and the challenges and ultimately problems this brings, both for them and for the state. And I would say, you know, Ungoverned spaces don't stay ungoverned that long because if they're ungoverned, that provides an opening for extremist groups, for example, for militant groups to step in and provide an alternative source of order. And that's what we see, for example, in cases like the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria Mm -hmm. or the Taliban is they recognize that there's a vacuum there and they're able to come in and offer a kind of rough and ready and quite brutal justice that does provide some modicum of order. But I would also say, and this is why we wanted to kind of group together militants, criminals, and warlords, as the book title says, is that even in places that don't get a lot of attention, like prisons, prisons can be somewhat anarchic, 
but that's where criminal gangs can kind of step in and provide some degree of order and internal governance in the prison system. And one thing we talk about is criminal constitutions in prisons in places like Brazil, for example. Yeah, that was actually a fascinating episode to talk about your discussion of that, the idea that the people become habituated to the idea, I will be in prison, so I must react to what's being told to me from inside prison, and that even people who are in prison for life just accept this and can continue in their enterprises. I wanted to go back to the idea of state breakdown. A major part of your book is a discussion of why state breakdown occurs. What are the main elements of breakdown? You mentioned that in some cases it can be intentional, as it was in the case of Colombia. Yes, and it very much goes to the very difficult and very fundamental question of how the state is created in the first place and what kind of social contract or its absence exists. So in Colombia, you have a state that for a long time has been enormously exclusive and serving the elites of a very privileged segment of society, highly urbanized, but often not just urbanized, sometimes very powerful rural elites, but in both cases, highly exclusive. In the context of state that is so exclusive, of the legitimacy issues that arise paramount, especially a state that's not only exclusive in terms of access to power and resources, but also in its negligence and indifference to the plight of the periphery, but the periphery being perhaps 60% of the state, so Mm -hmm. really not periphery in the sense of some very limited borderlands, Mm -hmm. such as Fatah in Pakistan. Or you can look at a different example, Pakistan, which the book a little bit touches on when it speaks about Afghanistan, with the very common misconception about Afghanistan being that it is a country without a nation, where we shouldn't be doing nation building is the shortcut. In fact, that's very much a misunderstanding of Afghanistan. Afghanistan's fundamental challenge is that it is a nation. Afghans consider themselves a nation much as they are tribal and ethnically divided, but they don't have effective governance. Pakistan has the opposite problem. It's a state or government without a nation. Mm. And again, to the issue of social contract, 9% or less of people in Pakistan pay taxes. Well, this is not just a matter of being clever in evading the authority. It's a fundamental absence of social contract Mm -hmm. and a notion that the state is what provides order. Someone else, in the case of Pakistan, provides order. We have to remember governance and governing is quite costly. And governments, however legitimate they may be, may not feel that it's worth their time, effort, and the financial resources to actually govern effectively in certain far-flung areas or parts of inner cities or favelas in the case of, say, Brazil. And you can pretty much outsource governance. And that's why there's sometimes this sort of tacit accommodation of criminal gangs and the government or the police will say, hey, these are no-go zones for us, but we're actually, in a sense, okay with other people kind of managing those areas because it's just not worth it for us. But, of course, the problem arises both with respect to the government conceding or agreeing to militants ruling parts of the territory and governments agreeing to that in the case of criminals is when the criminals and the militants stop obeying the state Mm -hmm. and say, okay, not only is this a no-go area for the state to come in, but we are now going to be coming out of the favelas. We are going to be coming out of Fatah. And our insurgency, our militancy will be leaking out. Same in Mexico, where many of the extraordinarily criminal violence issues 
are fundamentally about who governs, how one governs, and the state being enormously deficient and limited in its present, as well as enormously corrupt. And if I could just add sure. to what Vaughn is saying, this is why ideology matters. And what we try to do in this book, looking at these very diverse cases, is to kind of look at how much does identity, ideology, and religion matter. And those are sometimes topics that don't get as much attention in these studies because they're sort of hard to quantify mm -hmm. and political scientists generally have struggled to take religion seriously, I would argue, and religious ideologies. And this is where I think militants and criminals are a little bit different, that it's easier to tolerate criminal gangs because they're not really putting up a national challenge. They're not contesting the overall national legitimacy of the state. They're not offering an ideological alternative. But where militants become very dangerous and where they become a national security threat, not just for the countries that they're in, but also for the international community and us as Americans, is that they are actually challenging the state and providing an alternative ideological order. And that's in part what I would argue made the Islamic State so threatening is that it did have a distinctive governing vision that was based in its perverted understanding of Islam. But from their standpoint, there was a serious effort to lay out what that ideological or religious vision of governance would look like. I want you to come back to Islamic State in a moment, but I want to go back to something that both of you mentioned. That was the term legitimacy. And if there's a term that political scientists have grappled with a lot, it's legitimacy. And that's something that, that the book drills down on considerably, too, and how these non-state actors have legitimacy. First, can one of you define it as you're using a term? And then can you explain how they have legitimacy, too, and choose an example like Hezbollah and Lebanon or something? This is a challenge for the international community because when we try to help set up local orders or support states, especially in places like the Middle East or Pakistan and Afghanistan, which we've tried to do for many years now, there's a cultural and religious gap because we as outsiders are going to be seen as less legitimate and the groups that we support are also going to be seen as less legitimate because they're tied to us and perhaps they're more Western friendly or not as religiously conservative, which obviously matters in religiously conservative areas. And this is where I think local militant groups, however extreme or problematic or brutal they seem to us, they oftentimes have a better sense of what local expectations and mm -hmm. norms are. And that gives them a kind of built-in advantage. But I guess I'm not really answering the question of how to define legitimacy, yeah, yeah. but defining legitimacy is very challenging. Um, do you want to take a stab at it, Vanda? Uh, sure. Um, I would say the willingness to comply or willingness to avoid outright rebellion against the authority. And by rebellion, I don't mean organized rebellion, but even rebellion in the form of I am not going to be paying taxes, for e example. Acceptance. To a Ex acceptance of authority, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, we're in the book and we use quite frequently another term that I have used in a lot of my other work, which is political capital a crucial element of which is legitimacy, which I think goes beyond legitimacy. It's not just acceptance of authority, but also more internalized willingness or the capacity rather than universal capacity by the authority to mobilize action on the part of the subject. And I want to come back here in the notion of political capital as being very distinct 
from ideology to Shadi's comments about the differences between criminals, warlords, and militant group with ideologies that we examine. There is often a very simplistic and incorrect assumption that we challenge in the book that the absence of ideology means the absence of political capital. So you often hear, well, militants are political, insurgents are political, terrorists are political, criminals are just about the money. And that is, first of all, not necessarily correct in the behavior and motivation of criminal groups. But crucially, the fact that criminal groups control access to money, access to economies, and that they can control bullets on the street means that they can have tremendous amount of political capital. And in having political capital, they present an enormous challenge to the state if, in fact, the legitimacy and allegiance to them is far greater than to the state. Because what it means is they can mobilize action, they can mobilize popular action, whereas the state cannot. Let's take a short break now to hear from Molly Reynolds on what's happening in Congress. Events in Washington are moving fast, but while this segment was recorded on December 7th, Molly provides insight on the broader forces affecting congressional action on spending legislation. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies program at the Brookings Institution. With less than 48 hours to go before the current measure funding large parts of the federal government expires, Congress has yet to complete the necessary steps to keep the lights on. A short-term bill, lasting two weeks, seems likely to pass before the deadline, but this rush to avoid a shutdown has been a familiar component of congressional policymaking in recent years. Why are we facing a government shutdown yet again? One reason involves the degree to which the annual appropriations process is now asked to bear a greater amount of Congress's overall policy and political conflict. When gridlock is high and Congress takes up fewer pieces of legislation, the handful of must-pass bills, including appropriations measures, that Congress does take up each year become the targets for broader political and policy fights. We've seen this dynamic play out this year in a number of ways. Take, for example, the debate over whether to use a spending bill as the vehicle for adopting permanent legislation providing relief for DACA recipients. While Republicans in Congress have pushed for handling the issue separately from the appropriations process, some Democrats have advocated tying it to the year-end spending deal. It's unclear how exactly that will shake out, but the prospect of this kind of deal-making has become a normal part of spending decisions in a gridlocked Congress. The efforts by the House Freedom Caucus to shape the year-end debate are another example of how the appropriations process must bear much of the political conflict in the contemporary Congress. The Republican faction played hardball on the early stages of Obamacare repeal in the House this spring, but have been largely team players on the ongoing debate over tax legislation. Most Freedom Caucus members voted for the final version of the budget resolution that set up a filibuster-proof process for the tax bill in the Senate, despite the fact that some had previously advocated for more aggressive spending cuts as part of that legislation. But this week, the Freedom Caucus flexed its muscles again, threatening to slow down negotiations with the Senate on that tax bill over the direction of the year-end spending strategy. While it's unclear what, if any, effect the Freedom Caucus will have on Republicans' approach over the next few weeks, they clearly want to demonstrate their leverage within a fractured Republican conference, and a big appropriations bill is one of the few places they can do it. Polarization has also helped generate the conditions ripe for shutdown cliffs. In the Senate, where funding bills need to clear the threat of a filibuster, 
The majority party, currently the Republicans, must work with their partisan opponents to pass them. As political scientist Peter Hansen has shown, when the Senate majority is small, like Republicans' current 52-seat coalition, and when the parties are polarized, it's harder to get minority support for spending bills. Putting individual spending bills on the floor also forces senators to take politically difficult votes that potential opponents could highlight and challenge come the next election season. To help their own members avoid such scrutiny and to reduce the number of times they need to attract minority votes, majority party leaders take the omnibus route instead. Once Congress is planning on handling all its spending bills together, it raises the stakes of action. Beyond these structural factors, one key feature of today's negotiations can be traced to 2011 when, as part of negotiations to raise the debt ceiling, Congress adopted caps on discretionary spending. Democrats were concerned about the possibility that an overall limit on spending would lead to cuts in non-defense programs like education, housing, and scientific research to pay for increases in defense spending. So they insisted on two separate caps, one for defense programs and one for non-defense spending. In the years since 2011, that choice has proven consequential. Repeatedly, members of Congress who favor more military spending have deemed the defense spending caps too low. In a world where there was only one overall cap, defense hawks could attempt to raid the non-defense side of the budget. But because of the separate caps, members of Congress who care about non-defense programs have been able to tie increases in defense spending to funding increases on the non-defense side of the budget. This creates an extra substantive hurdle that must be overcome. Before Congress can actually write spending bills, first they must compromise on the overall amount of money to be spent. And because of Democrats' leverage here, the debate over where to set spending levels takes on a strong partisan bent. Congress may well make it out of this year's holiday season without a partial government shutdown, but we should expect to see similar situations crop up in the future, as broader forces in Congress are largely responsible for these kinds of showdowns. So that's what's happening in Congress and what's likely to happen again in the future. And now back to the interview. The book is rich in in-depth discussions of warlords, criminals, and militants in Afghanistan, Syria, Colombia, Mexico. Vanda, you spent a considerable amount of time in Afghanistan. How does the Taliban illustrate many of the issues we have just touched on? In very many ways. The Taliban is one of the most successful insurgencies. Let's remember that the group emerged in the 1990s. One, dominated Afghanistan. Yes, lost the power to U.S. intervention. But 16 years into U.S. intervention, it's at its greatest strength today at any time since 2001 and poses a massive threat to the state and massive threat to the international project. And it's a group that is often, in many ways, in its ideological disposition, very backward. The vision of Islam that it sought to impose on Afghan society was widely rejected. Nonetheless, still today, despite an ideology that is difficult to sell and that people don't want, is so strong today. Why is that? And this goes to the issue of how do groups gain legitimacy? The Taliban is not potent simply because Pakistan provides it with logistical support. The Taliban is strong, robust, and poses a massive threat to the Afghan state and the international project because it systematically outcompetes the Afghan government in the provision of governance. Now, it's something to say that about a group that's extraordinarily backward and extraordinarily brutal. 
Mm-hmm. Yet, even despite those characteristics, it is better able to deliver the elemental functioning that people need to go about their everyday business. So the international community, the U.S. military in Afghanistan, NATO, have been tied up in knots and preoccupied about doing these popular surveys in which they ask, is the Taliban popular? And they never are. But that's also the irrelevant question. The only question that matters is, is the Taliban more acceptable than the local alternative? Mm. And if the local alternative is a warlord or district governor or police governor who is capricious, and predatory, then even a predictable brutality of the Taliban is preferable and easier to live with. And this is a key mistake to sort of assume that an ideology needs to be popular in order to gain legitimacy on the ground. And the Taliban is a good example of that, as Vanda said, but also ISIS, whose ideology was never popular and it was always seen as quite extreme, even in religiously conservative areas of Iraq and Syria. But they were still able to gain at least some degree of legitimacy. Why? And this is sort of, I think, the puzzle that we try to address. And I think one of the common threads, if you look at these different cases, whether the Taliban or ISIS or even to some extent criminal gangs in Latin America, is that one of the first things they focus on is dispute resolution. So essentially playing a judicial function of mediating problems between individuals, tribes, or communities and delivering justice, even if in this case it might be very rough or brutal. And in some cases that can actually be more effective because the rougher the justice is, the more you're able to sort of establish your authority and get things done. Mm -hmm. And people may be willing to accept that in cases of chaos and anarchy, they just want a dominant power to come in and resolve some of these basic disputes or basic problems. And also the experience with corruption is important. So if we're comparing why the Taliban has been more effective when it comes to these local judicial functions compared to the Afghan state, if you want to get justice with the Afghan state, with their courts, you oftentimes have to pay bribes. You have to deal with very corrupt judges. The Taliban, for all of its brutality, is not as corrupt in that particular sense. I want to stick with the Islamic State for a moment because the argument you were making about legitimacy was strike some as fantastical that it was accepted as legitimate, but it was. To some degree. To I, some I, degree. I wouldn't want to overstate. Okay. And again, this different definitions of legitimacy may right. come out on this in different ways, but I do think it's fair to say that at least in the initial period, I would say before the U.S., launched airstrikes and intensified them in the fall of 2014, the Islamic State or ISIS did have quite a bit of success in governing. Now, that doesn't mean they were great at governing. It just means that, again, they were better than the available alternatives. And this Mm -hmm. is a key point that we Mm -hmm. keep on going back to. You don't judge groups like this in absolute terms. You judge them in relative terms. Because if you're an Iraqi or Syrian citizen, you're not judging things in some kind of ideal sense and looking for what your ideal type of governance is. You're saying, hey, the thing that I'm most acquainted with recently is the sectarianism of the Iraqi government or the brutality and mass murder of the Syrian regime. And that's what you're comparing to. So it's a very low bar. So that's why 
ISIS to be successful does not have to be great. They just have to be better than the available alternatives. And they were. When I can come to ISIS, because we also talk about ISIS in Khorasan, which is the Islamic faction in Afghanistan, and they face very interesting challenges and issues there, which militant groups as well as criminals face. So we have talked about how both militants, criminals, and warlords deliver governance and how they often outcompete the state in governance. Well, not all groups are equally, and not all individuals, not all warlords are equally adept at that. And they make some of the basic same choices as the state. How are they going to rule? Going back to Machiavelli, is it going to be ruling simply through brutality or is it going to be ruling through brutality that's more brutal than the brutality of the rival? Or is it going to be also ruling through might in combination with political capital, in combination with legitimacy? So groups make those choices. In the case of Islamic State in Afghanistan, they made the decision they'll simply be more brutal than the Taliban and resorted to many tactics that even by the standards of the Taliban punishments were intolerable and really shocking. Interestingly enough, many of the ISIS commanders in Afghanistan are washouts from the Taliban, people, leaders whom the Taliban leadership expelled because they were too brutal too unpredictable, too uncontrollable, even for the Taliban. And the other decision they made was an ideological decision. The Taliban, although it's Sunni and Wahhabi, or the Obandi more precisely rather than Wahhabi, but associated with a very doctrinaire backward segment of Sunni Islam, and although it's been often uh, targeting minorities, at least under the Mansur leadership era, has made a very explicit choice not to turn the insurgency in Afghanistan into a sectarian issue. They have often hid Hazara, which are Shia minorities, but not because they were Shias. What the Islamic State in Afghanistan and Khorasan has decided to do was to be simply very brutal, deliver much less governance, but also to play the sectarian card. That's their principle mechanism by which they are trying to get legitimacy that the Taliban has not been able to. And, and just one comment about the decision that groups made about brutality versus legitimacy in its authority, in its rule. We also speak about the Mexican criminal groups and contrast two set of groups. On the one hand, the Zetas and Jalisco Nueva Generacion, whose choice is we will rule, we will get territories and rule through brutality. We'll be more brutal than any other dog, any other group on the ground. Versus the Sinaloa cartel or the Sinaloa drug trafficking group, who is very conscious of having political capital, political project with the state as well as with the local population. Yeah, the book is, again, a fascinating discussion of the political use of violence for legitimacy or, in the case of ISIS in, in Afghanistan, illegitimacy in some ways. I want to end by asking you both to talk about one of the main points you make in the book. How should the international community, especially the United States, act or deal with groups like the Taliban or criminal gangs in Mexico or non-state actors generally? What have we been doing and what should we do? That's a large question, I know, but just if you can hone yeah, in on some points. Sure. So... We obviously, and that's one of the reasons we wrote this book, we think governance is very important. Mm -hmm. So when we hear the Trump administration, but also to some extent the Obama administration as well as other Western governments, they talk a lot about fighting extremism. But you can't 
fight extremism by fighting extremism. Or to put it differently, you can't eradicate terrorism by eradicating terrorism because terrorism is a product of other things. So I think there's a real mistake in having this very narrow frame with which to understand the rise of terrorism and extremism. And by focusing more on governance, we're able to address the context in which terrorist groups arise. So to put it more simply, ISIS would not have been able to govern in large swaths of Iraq and Syria if there was already a somewhat legitimate party or state governing in those areas. They were able to fill a vacuum. So that helps us understand how ISIS rose in the first place. But it's also important in preventing ISIS 2.0 or whatever the future iteration is. And this is what I think I'm really worried about when it comes to the international community's approach is that there's no serious focus on governance and state building. And to use the pejorative term that people don't like to use anymore, nation building. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason we don't talk about those things because they require a lot of time, attention, expertise, local knowledge of the local cultures and religions and massive financial resources. We don't want to be unrealistic in terms of the conclusions that we offer. So we admit that, hey, governance is difficult. Governance does take a lot of resources, but it is possible to have realistic timelines and to put more resources, not something too extravagant, but to at least move in a better direction where we're at least acknowledging that addressing governance issues in the areas that we've liberated from ISIS, that those issues matter. And we as Americans or the international community have to at least have something to say about how we rebuild after these groups pass from the scene if we don't want them to reemerge. Yeah, Shadi is right. If I had one capsule, I would say it's politics stupid. Counterterrorism is not simply about eliminating leaders of terrorists or even killing enough terrorists. Dealing with criminals is often not simply about arresting enough criminals, arresting enough high-value targets. It is about removing the political capital of terrorist groups, warlords, and criminals. Hence, it's about politics and governance. Now, the last chapter of the book provides a lot of detailed policy recommendations that we don't have time and space Mm to drill in the conversation here today, all the reason to buy the book. Uh, (laughs) But I would um, just highlight one, which is the corollary to trends in U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy, but also in Western Europe and the West more broadly, as a result of the pains of the Iraq and Afghanistan intervention, is both to say our engagement will be very limited. We'll rely on special operation forces and particularly limited airstrikes or drone strikes, remote, offshore, supposedly clean and neat. And we will build partner capacity, which in the best of circumstances means building up security forces of governance or often means relying on proxies such as warlords and standing up militias. And that's yet another shortcut to the notion that one can dispense with politics and governance. And so in case study after case study, in the Colombia ones, as well as in the ISIS ones and Afghanistan ones, we show how this shortcut is of very limited use and how it often backfires. Because the presumed partners, our proxies, tend to very quickly diverge from our interest. 
So if we decide that an area is enormously threatening to the United States, the international order, or threatening to very vital ally, then we need to be ready to get our hands dirty with governance and politics and hold our proxies and our presumed partners accountable. And here is where often we struggle most. Mm -hmm. The challenge of Afghanistan today and for much of the decade is not the challenge of the Taliban. It is the challenge of the Afghan government. And how do we make Afghan politicians and Afghan government behave in less parochial, less selfish, less brinkmanship base? And similarly, how do we get Pakistan's leadership to behave in ways that are contrary to our interests? I want to thank you both for coming by today to talk about your new book with Harold Trinkunas, too, who is unfortunately unable to join us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You can find the book, Militants, Criminals, and Warlords, The Challenge of Local Governance in an Age of Disorder, on our website, brookings.edu, and wherever you buy books. Speaking of books, the Brookings Press is again offering holiday book bundles for the discerning reader in your life. Brookings Institution Press bundles offer interesting, engaging, and intelligent books in politics, history, and international affairs, plus a Brookings tote bag. Visit brookings.edu slash holidaybundles to learn more and order now. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Pamela Berman and Julian Chung. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.